First Corinthians 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession and not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this. I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I say in all churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not be uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when they were called. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when he went called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when, is, when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now concerning virgins, 
I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the current or the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it's not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free of concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled in his own mind, who is under no compulsion and has, and has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as he is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. Thanks, Kemi. Let's uh, ask for God's uh, Spirit to be at work in our hearts as we think about his word. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words uh, written for us by your Spirit about your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what it means to live a life trusting him and following him. And we pray, Lord, as we reflect on these words, and uh, that you would give us wisdom and understanding, uh, that you would help us to live in light of uh, who we are in Christ uh, and who you've called us to be and where you've placed us. Lord, we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm guessing you probably have, but sex is everywhere in our society. Uh, it's in the newspapers, it's in TV shows, it's on movies, it's on the internet, it's on people's phones. Uh, it's so accessible, uh, it's in people's conversations. Just the other day, a young person was telling me about uh, being caught up in a conversation where the people around them were describing their sexual conquests. Uh, sometimes in graphic detail. And with sex everywhere, it's hard not to be dragged into 
distorted and corrupted sexual activities, whether that's pornography, adultery, sex outside of marriage, one-night stands, or whatever else it might be. Now, last week when Thomas was speaking to us from the passage before this in 1 Corinthians, he showed us from that passage how God urges us to flee from sexual immorality like that. It's everywhere and we've got to run away from it as fast and as hard as we can. But what do you do when sex is everywhere in the world around you? Well, that's what life was like for the Corinthians. They lived in a culture, in a city, in a place, at a time where sex was everywhere. Uh, It was accepted and people were pretty open about it. And that's what life is like for us. And so this letter is helpful for us to think about what it means for us to live in a situation like the world that we're in, the culture that we're in. And in the passage that we just read, that Kemi just read for us, Paul is thinking particularly about how marriage and singleness fit in a sex-saturated culture. How do those things in particular fit within a culture like the one that we live in? Well, Paul uh, begins by addressing what it seems are issues that the Corinthians themselves have have raised. So he says in verse 1, Now for the matters that you wrote about. So they've written a letter to him, and he's addressing the things that they've written about. He says there, this is what they've written to him, it seems, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So he seems to be quoting a view that some of the people in that church held. It seems that some of the people in the church were avoiding sexual intimacy, uh, even within the context of marriage. Now, that might seem strange because, as I said just before, last week he was urging them to flee from sexual immorality. A little bit before that, he was talking about a man uh, who they'd refused to deal with in the church, who, who was living in a kind of inappropriate sexual relationship. So, it seems as though sexual uh, immorality is an issue in the church. So why then is Paul writing to them as though some of them are thinking about avoiding sex altogether? It could be that it was a reaction in some small part of the church or, or some part of the church towards that sexual immorality. That as a result of that, some people said, sex is dangerous, therefore it should be avoided at all costs even within marriage. It's also possible that some of the people had adopted the culture of the broader Roman, Greco-Roman world in which you didn't get married for sex. Uh, you got married in order to have kids. So you would marry a respectable woman, you would sleep with her in order to have kids, and for the rest of the time you would sleep with other people uh, for fun, whether that was other men or other women or boys or whatever. Uh, It was a pretty disturbing society. So it could be that they were thinking of that culture and they'd imported that into their Christian marriages. Sex was only for having kids. Another possibility or a contributing factor was that the Corinthians had seen the example of Paul. Paul himself was not married. He was committed to uh, a single life 
And perhaps some of them had seen that and thought that all of them perhaps needed to live the same way. Whatever the reason, precise reason was that Paul uh, or the Corinthians had these ideas about sexual intimacy, the point of what Paul is saying is pretty clear. And that is, while sexual immorality is wrong, he says, sex itself is not wrong. It has a proper place within the context of marriage. He says in verse 2, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. There's a place for sex and that place is confined to marriage. And within that context of marriage, not only is sexual intimacy okay, if you like, It's important. There's a kind of obligation to one another from husband and wife to give themselves in loving sexual intimacy. Of course, Paul's point is that it's a mutual giving in the context of this relationship, not a a kind of selfish taking. But Paul sees that regular sexual intimacy within the context of marriage as helpful and important as a defence against the sexual morality in the wider world. So he says in verse 6, Do not deprive each other except, perhaps by mutual consent, for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul says that regular sexual intimacy in marriage is important... It's important because it's a part of marriage and it's important because it's a helpful defence against immorality. So too, he says later to those who are not married, in verse 8, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So notice that Paul doesn't say to the unmarried that they should shack up with their partner, with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, and start uh, making love before the wedding. Uh, He says that they should marry so that they can enjoy sexual intimacy in the appropriate context. And importantly, he says later on in verse 39, that when they marry, they should marry in the Lord. That is, Christians should marry only other believers. Now, it's important to understand that Paul is not saying in this passage everything that is to be said about marriage. Not at all. He's not trying to summarise what we need to know about marriage. He's not dealing with that. He's dealing with a very specific question. He's not saying marriage is only good for sex. That's the only purpose for marriage. He's addressing the specific question, which is, how can the Corinthians best live as followers of Jesus in a world which is saturated, entrenched in sexual immorality? How can they live in that culture? And his answer to that question, to the Corinthians, is that marriage and frequent sexual intimacy within the context of marriage is an important part of living well in a sexually immoral culture. So God has made us as sexual beings, men and women. And it's pointless and foolish to pretend that we're not made like that. 
The problem is that sin has taken that good design and purpose of God and has corrupted and distorted that. And so that makes living in this faithfully in this life as sexual beings difficult. But God says that one of the ways that we keep ourselves from distorting and corrupting sexual intimacy is by appropriately honouring and enjoying it within the right context. So that is not a low view of sex or of marriage, as though the only reason for both of those is to stop sin. It's actually a high view of both those things because it says that when we rightly honour them, uh, we rightly value them and we protect them from distortion. So the first point that Paul makes is that an important part of living as Christians in a sexually immoral culture is enjoying and honouring sex in its proper place within the context of marriage. How do we live in a sex-saturated culture as Christians? We do that by enjoying and honouring sex within its proper context in marriage. So, here's an application I never thought I'd be making. If you're a married couple, make sure that sexual intimacy is a key and regular part of your married life. Make time for it. And talk about how you're going to make time for it. It can be tricky when life gets busy and when kids come along to still find time for sexual intimacy... But it's important that you do. And it's important that when you do that, it's one of the key ways that you love and serve and foster love to one another, for one another. So too, one of you in the marriage might feel the urge for more frequent sexual intimacy. That's not always men. But you'll need to navigate that by talking about it and working out what's best in your situation. And there will undoubtedly need to be some give and take on both sides. But the key point is that sexual intimacy is a key part of married life and it ought to be a regular part of married life. And if it isn't, then please uh, go home and talk about that and work out a good way forward. Because it's a gift from God to be enjoyed... And rightly honoured, it protects us from distorting and corrupting sexual intimacy. So that's the application to married people. To those who are not married, Paul says, don't be a hero. Don't ignore the fact that God has made us as sexual beings. And be open to the possibility that it may be wise to marry, if possible. That may not be possible, and if that's not possible, then... You can trust that God will give you all that you need to live in that situation. But don't, God says, don't deliberately put yourself in danger of sexual immorality by foolishly deciding to stay single. So too, if you're dating someone or if you're engaged and you really want to sleep together, then get married. 
Uh, Of course, you need to think carefully about whether the relationship uh, and that marriage is wise. Uh, And you should ask older and wiser people for their view on whether that marriage is wise. So don't just rush into marriage because you want to have sex. But if you want to get married, don't unnecessarily delay it. Don't, don't date for three or four years. Uh, don't, don't get engaged and then plan to get married you know, a long time later so that you can uh, plan a really wonderful wedding. Uh, it's just... Honestly, just get married. <laughs> just, just do it. Uh, it's one of the best things you can do. If it's wise for you to marry that person and you want to get married, then do it and enjoy the sexual intimacy that is the fulfilment of your relationship. Don't unnecessarily delay it. So Paul says to the Corinthians, what is one of the key ways that they can live in a sex-saturated culture? Uh, One of the key ways is by rightly honouring and enjoying sexual intimacy within the context of marriage. And that's the same for us. That's one of the key ways that we can live in our society uh, as followers of Jesus. But Paul goes on to say, while that's true, that doesn't mean that life without sex and without marriage is impossible or bad. In fact, he wants to show the Corinthians that it is true that it can life as a single person, life without sex, can be very fruitful and meaningful. And so he says in verse 8, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. He says something similar again in verse 26, and then in verse 37 as well. But why? What are the reasons that singleness can be good? Well, Paul gives three reasons. God gives us three reasons in this passage why a person might remain single. The first is because of the present crisis. The second is because the world is coming to an end. And the third is because of the distractions of married life. So first, he says in verse 26, because of this present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So it seems that there was a difficult circumstance within Corinth at the time. We have evidence that there were famines in the region around that time. It could be that there was a famine going on. It could be a whole host of other things that were going on as well that we don't know about. It could have been the crisis of sexual immorality in the church, perhaps, as well, that caused Paul uh, to say some of these things. But the point is that Paul says, because of this present crisis, whatever it is, they might want to reconsider what they're doing. They they should remain for the moment in the situation that they're in. Now, he's speaking here to those who are engaged to be married. And he says both that maybe it's not wise to rush into marriage now, since that could come with complications. After all, it's much harder to look after two people than just one, uh, let alone... Uh, two plus kids in a time of crisis than to look after just one. If you, it's just you alone in a famine. It's much easier to provide for yourself, say, than it is to provide for a whole family. Maybe now's not the time, Paul says. But he also says to those who are engaged, you don't need to rush into marriage, but they shouldn't feel the need that they should separate. They can just wait until times are better. 
Now, it's important also to realise that he's not giving a command. Uh, he's giving advice on what he thinks is best in the, in the present circumstance. But the implication is that there may be times when it's better or worse to marry. There may just be life circumstances or environmental situations in which it might simply not be a good time to marry. The question is not, is marriage good or is singleness good, but is marriage good at the moment? So think maybe about the past couple of years during COVID. Imagine a couple who are engaged, uh, who've been going out for a while. One of them is here in Tassie and the other is in New South Wales. But because of border restrictions and all kinds of other complications that have arisen because of COVID, they can't meet. There are, there are just challenges because of that situation. Maybe for them, marriage is a good idea, but maybe it's just not now. Maybe they just have to be patient and wait. Or maybe uh, you're young, you might not have a job, you might not have a place to live, you might not be able to afford a place to live. Uh, maybe you, you have a, someone that you're going out with, you would like to marry. Maybe marriage is a good idea, but maybe now is not the time. Or maybe you're older, maybe your first spouse has passed away and you meet someone that you think you both would like to marry but then one of your children has a, an enormous life crisis. Maybe it's still a good idea to marry but maybe now is not the time. Maybe it's wise just to wait. So Paul says there are times, God tells us there are times maybe when, although marriage is good, when it's, when it's wise to be cautious. But Paul moves from that, from the present crisis, to look at marriage through the lens of eternity, the return of Jesus to judge the world. He says in verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. And he says in verse 31, for this present world, this world in its present form is passing away. So the fact that this present world is passing away relativizes, Paul says, the significance and the importance of marriage. What does, he, what does that mean? He means simply this, marriage is not forever. Marriage will come to an end. It's a good gift from God, it's good to enjoy it, but also we need to recognise that it's just not forever. That's probably actually more unusual for us than it is for people living in other times. And people living in other times, probably when they got married, would have assumed that they would not reach their deathbed with the same person that they married the first time. Uh, it's just very likely that your spouse would die or you would die before you reached a good age. Marriage is not forever. It's good uh, to recognise that it's a good gift, but it's also important to think about marriage through the lens of recognising that time is short and to ask the question, what is the best way that you can use your time and your gifts and your energy? Is it by marriage or is it by remaining unmarried and devoting your time to serve God? Marriage is a good gift, but not 
and ultimate gift. So don't think my life is incomplete because I'm not married, because this life doesn't last forever. It's just a a few seconds, really, compared to eternity. Don't think I'm missing out because I'm not married, because whatever things you might enjoy now in the context of marriage will pass away and will be replaced by far more glorious things. So there are times not to marriage because of the present crisis. We need to, 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 to reevaluate marriage as well through the, the lens of eternity and to recognise that it's, not, it's good but not ultimate. And third, uh, Paul, Paul says that marriage also comes with its share of troubles. He says in verse 28, But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I will spare you this. And then he says in verse 32, that it brings distractions. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. So God says marriage brings other things to think about. It's not that those things are wrong to think about. It's just a reality that it brings other things to think about. Some of you undoubtedly know that more acutely than I do. But I remember a friend of mine once getting married and I remember it was kind of fascinating to observe as he entered married life and sort of began to live his married life, it was fascinating to observe the significant difference that made in his attention, his, his ability to focus on different things. The amount of time that he had to devote to his wife was quite obvious. I mean, they'd been spending lots of time together before they were married. But as soon as they actually got married, it was like it went to a whole other level. And he was right to, 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 to be focused on, uh, on his wife's needs. Uh, but it was just fascinating to observe. That's not bad. As I said, it's right that, that he should be doing that and that married people should be focusing on what their husband or their wife need. Paul is just saying that's the reality. He's not making a value judgment on it. And that, of course, becomes even more complicated when kids are involved. A few months ago, I don't know what it was, but every time I seemed to talk to someone who was married, they would express to me the challenge of all the things that they had to do with their kids. To take them here and then take them there, and then one of them would be going off here to soccer, and the other one would be going off there to to drama, and uh, you know, and they'd and they'd get the kids into bed, and and then they'd you know they'd finally just kind of collapse on the lounge. It's just the reality. It doesn't mean that those things are bad to do. It's just the reality of married life. That's that's what Paul is saying. If you're married. You have those focuses. If you're not, you can focus on other things. You have an opportunity to do that. It doesn't mean that one person is better than the other. It's just an opportunity that God gives. I can honestly say, as a single person, I don't know sometimes whether it's because I'm single or it's whether because I'm single and in ministry, but an enormous amount of my life goes into thinking about how to live for God. Like probably 90%. I don't, I'm, like I'm not saying, I'm not, 
90, 95%. I'm not saying that to kind of claim some kind of super spiritual status. It's just the opportunity that my life affords. Now, you can be single and not live like that. But there's undoubtedly an enormous opportunity to focus on living for God. That's Paul's point. There's a great opportunity in singleness that ought not to be diminished. So Paul says there's good reasons to marry, there's good reasons to be single. But finally, uh, he says, and you can, you can choose whatever you want. He says, if you want to marry, great. If you want to stay single to serve God, even better, as long as you can control yourself. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. The most important thing he wants to get across is not whether you should marry or remain single. The most important thing he wants to get across is that whatever situation you're in, you should live for God. So he says in verse 17, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. So whatever situation you're in, you need to live for God. Now in the first place, he's talking about uh, those people who've become Christians. He says they don't need to radically change their life circumstances in order to live for God. They need to change the way they live, but they don't need to change their station in life. So, verse 24, uh, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to, to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. If you're a slave, it's better to be free, but don't panic about being a slave. Right? If you become a Christian and you have a master who's not a believer, don't freak out about having to live as a follower of Christ in that setting. If you're married, and you're married, for example, to someone who's not a believer as well, and you've become a Christian after that, and the life that they're living doesn't, doesn't reflect the kind of life that God is calling you to live, don't freak out about that. Just try and live for God in the place where you are. You can't leave the world in order to serve God. And in the same way, wherever we are, we need to serve God. We, we, you know, perhaps you're working for a, a godless employer. You don't need to panic that your boss will corrupt you. Just try and live faithfully. That may mean sometimes making a stand on things that, you know, and you might lose your job. That's fine. Don't panic. Wherever you are, seek to live for God. Don't panic that your unbelieving spouse might drag you away from God. If as a worker you can find a job working for another better boss, then do it. But don't panic. If you're single, live for God as a single person. You might not want to be single. You might find that incredibly hard. But don't panic about it. Serve God where you are. If you're married, live for God as a married person. Maybe you find married life difficult. Maybe the relentlessness of it drives you around the bend. Maybe you look at People who are not married and you think of all the extra things that you could be doing for God, you think you might be tempted to think, wow, my life would be so much more fruitful if I wasn't married. God says, no. 
live for me in the situation where you are. Don't panic. Live for, the, for God in, in the place that he's called you. And do everything in your power to do that. Second, Paul gives instructions on what that means. What does it mean to live for God wherever we are? Well, finally, he says in verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is this. The time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. How do you live for God wherever you are? You live as though the time is short and the world is passing away. Uh, That's what Paul means when he says that those who have wives or husbands should live as though they don't. So he doesn't mean just pretend that you don't have a wife or a husband. You know, it's like, I can't see you, you're not there, you're not there, I'm just doing whatever I want to do. He doesn't mean that. He means live every day as if your marriage wasn't going to last forever. Live every day in your married life as if time was short and eternity is coming. On the day you get married, don't think, we'll live together for the rest of our lives, for another 40 years, 50 years, we'll buy a house, we'll have kids, we'll live a great life. Think, God in his grace has led us to this point, and God in his grace may give us another 50 years. But God in his grace might only give us another two days. And live as though the time is short. Live thinking God might give you 40 years, but live in the expectation that he might not as well. Similarly, when Paul says to live as though you don't have any possessions, he doesn't mean, you know, don't bother getting the car service because Jesus might come back tomorrow. I don't need to replace the oil. Jesus might come back. He's not saying that. He's saying when you take the car to get serviced, as you do that, remember that Jesus might come back tomorrow. As the car gets old and you think, oh gosh, it'd be nice to have another car, you know, a bit nicer, a bit more flash, a bit more comfortable, better for long trips. As you think about that, think, you know, time is short. Jesus may come back tomorrow. What's the best thing that I can do? When you think about renovating the house, stop and remember that the house won't last forever and neither will you. You could be gone tomorrow. Now, that doesn't mean that you should never renovate the house, but I tell you what, it will radically change the decisions that you make about that. When you think about selling your house and upsizing to something more comfortable, stop and remember that the new house won't last forever. When you think about buying a shack on the coast or going on wonderful overseas holidays, stop and remember that time is short and Jesus is coming back. He could come back tomorrow. What do you want to spend the last day of your life doing?
when you think about tomorrow and you begin this afternoon to make plans for what you're going to do. It's a public holiday. The world is your oyster. As you think about what you're going to do, even just tomorrow, remember that that time is short. There's lots of good things you can do, and and it's good to do good things. But remember, as you make the decision, remember that time is short. Bring that into the calculation for everything you do. Someone I know passed away quite suddenly two weeks ago. They went in for a routine operation uh, and they never woke up. Time is short. Teach us to number our days, O God, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Often when someone suddenly dies, people say things like, if I'd known that those were going to be my last days with Bob or whoever it was, if I'd known that those were going to be my last days with them, I would have done things differently. We would have spent our time doing different things. In the same way, Jesus is coming back. Time is short. Live every day as though it's the last. It might go on. Be prepared for that. But live every day as though time is short and Jesus is coming back. You can be married and you can live like that. And you can be single and you can live like that. And you can be married and not live like that. And you can be single and not live like that. Whatever situation you're in, live for God. Live as though the time is short, the world is passing away, and Jesus is coming back. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good gifts that you give to us. Lord, we thank you for the good gift of marriage and the good gift of sexual intimacy. And Lord, we thank you for the good gift of singleness and the opportunities that that can afford to serve you with greater focus. And Lord, help us to rightly honour and to value both of those stations in life for their different opportunities, for their different gifts uh, and for their different potentials. But Lord, whatever situation we're in, we pray that you would help us to serve you with our whole heart, our whole being. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to live as though time is short. Lord, to live as though we were in a time of war. And the battle was raging. And all our efforts were going to the front line. Lord, forgive us so often for being tied up in the here and the now, whether that's marriage or children or homes or work or wanting to be married or not wanting to be married, whatever it is, Lord, that absorbs our attention. Lord, forgive us for those things and help us to remain fixed 
firmly fixed on eternity and the return of Christ. Lord, change our perspective, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.